would seek to snatch and steal us if it were not for the power of our God. We've been hearing about it all morning from the children and from the music. It's the mercy of God that we are where we are and that we know what we know and that we believe what we believe. And as I think about the sermon, as I was studying and thinking about the sermon for this week, my mind was drawn to the fact that most of us do not see our lives as if we are soldiers in an army. Most of us think of our lives in very civilian terms. In fact, that's the way we arrange our life. That's how we spend our money. That's how we spend our time or like to spend our time is on what, what Paul would call civilian pursuits. They're not bad things. They're not, they're not evil things. The people here at Grace Fellowship are a faithful people in many ways, and, that, and that's uh, evident by your life. But we just are at ease so often, aren't we? I mean, just be honest with yourself and with your people around. We're at ease. We're not on the front line. We don't view ourselves as on the front line, fighting for the, for the facts and the truth and the heart change of the gospel. Not for ourselves, not for our families, not for our co-workers. We think, wrongly I think, we have all the time in the world for that. We'll get to it later. We're great procrastinators in so many ways, aren't we? And the text that we have in front of us forbids that. Paul says, stand firm. Hold your ground. Do not give an inch. Don't back down. Don't become afraid. Don't put down your armor. God has given you all you need. Now stand, lest you fall, is the implied end of that. If you don't stand, if you're not busy standing, then you're falling. And so often I think the trap, as I think about it, my life, your life, practical terms, it's easy to think about other people, isn't it? When we come to the text, I just think, well, you know the liberals. You know those liberals that call themselves Christians. They've given up the gospel. They're social gospelers. They're more worried about political things. They're more worried about feeding the poor, clothing the, those who need clothes, sheltering those who need shelter, helping in tsunami relief, but they're not going to preach the gospel. Those sorry liberals have given up the fight. That's, that's, that's the way we want to look at a text like this. They need to hear this message. But the reality is, and what really hit home to me now, four or five weeks into thinking about this text, very specifically, what hit me was, I, I need to stand. I don't need to worry about whether the liberal is standing, or whether the people in the typical church in Cowan County is standing, or whether my neighbor is standing, or whether my dad is standing, or whether my grandmother is standing, or whether whatever. I need to worry about whether I'm standing, whether I've put down the armament and I'm at ease. That's what I need to be thinking about. So as we go through this today, don't fall into the trap of thinking this message would be great for, and you fill in the blank, this person or that person. It's for us. I am, I am terrified in my own life that I'm going to entertain myself to death. That's the, that's the greatest danger for us, isn't it? That we can just go through life every day, living like good average Joes in America, and we just slip silently, we slip slowly 
into the trance of the culture around us that is all about ease and relaxation. Take the easy road. Don't take the road less traveled. Don't fight. Be at peace. Just get by the best you can. Enjoy life now. Take what you can take. Keep what you can keep. Use what you can use. I'm afraid that's the danger for us, is that we lay down the armament so we can have what we want now rather than waiting on the great prize of the gospel and fighting until we attain it. There's not many of us, is there, that are straining. Like the Philippians says, I'm straining, Paul said. I'm reaching the end where I will gather the gold medal that I've been looking for, the crown of glory. And I'm straining. Any of you have ever run in a race? No. What he's saying is, I've rounded the last turn in the course. And I'm not walking. I'm running. I'm not limping. I'm not barely getting by. I'm not barely holding on. I am running full out for the finish line. This is an old man, beaten, bruised, imprisoned, hungry, thirsty, but fully alive. This is the same Paul that said, my outward man is dying every day, but my inner man is being renewed day by day. This is the Paul that says, I stood at my first defense with no one. No one stood with me. I faced the lion in the lion's den alone except the Lord was with me. This is the same Paul who said, we are hoping for the day that this earthly tent, this body, will fall to the ground and we will put on a new body which will never fade away. That is the hope of the gospel that he calls it in Colossians, Christ, to attain the hope of the gospel which is in Christ. That's what this passage is all about, is people, Christians, straining, striving, running, sprinting, dying to attain the goal. Not taking it easy, not relaxing, not enjoying the pleasures today, but looking for the pleasure that is ahead. And it is, as we will see in this text, the gospel that empowers us to do this. Look at the text again. We're going to pick it up. Uh, We're going to read through it. And then we're going to focus in on a couple of verses. The end of verse 15 through the beginning of verse uh, 17. But let's read it. Let's read it together in its context. Finally, at the end, after all I've told you in in this letter... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. I'm going to insert something in understanding that I'm gaining more and more. Civilians worry about flesh and blood. I think that's Paul's mentality. People who are caught up in the schemes of the devil are people who are worried about flesh and blood. They're concerned about whether their stock rose or fell. They're concerned about whether their wife is nice or mean. They want their children to look good to everybody else. They want the best education available. They want, they want the things they can have right now. That means you've fallen into the scheme of the devil because now you're wrestling with flesh and blood. And that's not who we wrestle against. You see the difference? That Christians are caught in the trap often of flesh and blood. 
I don't like self-discipline because it doesn't feel good. I don't like saying no to myself because then that desire is unfulfilled for the moment. I don't get what I want. Flesh and blood. Paul says that's not what we're fighting, flesh and blood. We're fighting against someone who has a scheme. He is a spirit. He is a real being, the devil. And his minions, the rulers, the authorities against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The things that we cannot see are more real than things we lay our eyes on. That's the perspective of the Apostle Paul. He's not worried about the man that can take his life. He's worried about the one who can throw his body and soul into hell forever. That's who he fears. And when you only fear that God, you cannot fear anyone else. That's because you've realized this is a spiritual war. The things I can't see that are going on around me right now as I speak. The schemes and attacks against us as we hear the word of God preached. That we can't see who's carrying them out. That's the real battle. Not the people in the pews or the people at work are the neighbors, are our family, our flesh and blood desires and wants we can have today or tomorrow. That's not what we're to be concerned with. Let that come or go. Jesus would say, let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. What is Jesus saying? Is he against funerals? No, he's saying, don't get caught up in all that. Don't get caught up in storing for yourself more and more in barns that your, your children will spend the goods in. But give all that, be willing to give all that away and follow me. All these things I've done, well then all you lack is sell everything you have and follow me. What is Jesus' focus throughout the Gospels? A spiritual reality that's deeper than the physical we can put our hands on or see with our eyes. And that's Paul's focus. That's Paul's focus. That's why the apostle is straining, he's pushing, he's hammering, be strong in the Lord and Fight the fight with the whole armor of God. Stand against the schemes of the devil. He repeats this command to stand constantly in this passage. Four times he says, stand, stand, stand. Therefore, he says, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand, there it is again, in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. Stand. Having Fastened on the belt of truth, like we talked about last week. The belt of truth. Christ is the truth. The Word of God is the truth. What we believe is the truth, but that makes us truthful. Men of integrity. People who are not only believing, but living the truth. And the breastplate of righteousness. Not just the breastplate of the righteousness of Christ, which we have. Okay? The reason I argued last week that this is not referring to the righteousness bestowed on us by Jesus Christ, the reason I said that I don't think that's what he's talking about. When he says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, why would he be telling us to put on what we already have? The righteousness of Christ is ours. We have that. That is a promise from God that when you become a believer, you are now wrapped up, clothed in, to the very core, you are the righteousness of Christ. Before the throne of God, you are right, made right by the imputed righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So why would Paul say, put on the breastplate of righteousness? Because what he's really talking about is the holiness that comes from that righteousness. Your and my life should be holy, set apart, 
different, unlike everyone else around us. If no one ever thinks you're a little bit crazy, a little bit off your rocker, a little bit radical, something's not right. If somebody doesn't ever call you an old fogey, a stick in the mud, a party pooper, someone who won't just get along with the times, something's not right. We are to be strange and alien to this world. Our decisions should make no sense to the flesh and blood that we're not wrestling against anyway. But trust me, when you put on this breastplate of righteousness, when I tell you that because the imputed righteousness of Christ is the ground and the, and the firm foundation of your then holy actions, you will be hated by Satan. Paul is not saying if you put on this armor, life gets easy. He's saying you put on this armor, you better have a sword in your hand because you got to fight. you got to fight. When you come to Christ and you suit up every day for a war, you're in a war. So don't be surprised when everything in life gets turned upside down. When everything in life seems to go wrong that can go wrong. Don't be surprised by that. I was speaking uh, through email this week with a pastor whose church was under spiritual attack last week. And their pastor, one of their pastors uh, was there. He's teaching on Galatians. He's teaching on a lot of the same things I am, the, the spiritual realm of the world around us. And in the middle of his sermon, he had stroke-like symptoms. He just could not communicate anymore. He was overcome. Pastor Rose went to him. They, they ushered him off. They take him to the hospital. They think he's had a stroke. It's the hospital. The hospital says, there's nothing wrong with him. What I'm telling you is what we often would assign off to some physical thing. This pastor said, our church has become dangerous to the enemy. Our people need to know he will stop at nothing to stop this gospel from taking root in this place. He will stop it if he can. Those are eyes focused on the real battle. They see it not as physical, but as spiritual. We're under attack. We should not be surprised. Whatever comes our way, that our enemy seeks to take us, to kill us, to stop us. And I'm telling you, when you take the challenge of Paul and you put on the armor of God, the fight starts then. If you want to live in relaxation, Satan will leave you alone. You are no danger to him. You are no threat. Why does he worry? That guy's sidelined himself. I just get on with the people who really believe what they believe. So if your life's sailing along, just make sure it's sailing along for the right reasons. Make sure it's not that you're on the sideline. Because if you're fighting... You should expect a fight. And this is not some distant fight. This is hand-to-hand -hand combat. In this text, we're told and confronted with the fact that we wrestle. Do you see that word in verse 12? We wrestle against flesh and blood. Everything about this armor is about hand-to-hand -hand combat. Not shock and awe bombings from a far distance. Not drone planes going in and spying on the enemy and dropping uh, high-tech weapons. Paul knew nothing of that. Paul understood a Roman battle, hand to hand. 
Mano imano. Sword in the hand, shield in the other arm, whacking one another, fighting for position and leverage, and pinning one another to the ground as you strike the death blow to the gut. That's the kind of war Paul understood and saw played out all around him. He's, when he's talking to us, he's talking Christian about you getting busy every day. I love UFC. Ultimate fighting chips. I love it. I go to YouTube because I'm too cheap to buy it and watch it. I like it. It's, it's, it's just something about it. That's the kind of brawl we're talking about. Ultimate fighting championships. The old school ones with Hoyt Gracie. Before they did away with put all the gloves on, went to rounds. I mean, when they used to fight until the place was covered with blood and somebody either broke out, broke an arm, died. Somehow they said, that's over. He can't fight anymore. Next guy in the ring. That's the kind of fight I like to watch. And that's the kind of fight you're in and I'm in if we're saying we're in Christ's, every, Christ's army. It's a daily war. No rules. Our enemy knows no rules. He goes after everything he can to tear us down and destroy us. You better be ready when you put on this armor. How can I be ready? How do I stand? Today's verse answers the question. Stand therefore, having put on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, verse 15, our text for the day, 15 through 17a, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness, not the gospel, you're not shodding your feet with the gospel. Don't ever make that mistake. That's not what he's saying. The gospel is the sword. Don't confuse them. We fight with the word of God, with the sword. But what keeps us in, able to stand with the readiness, the preparedness, the confidence, the assurance of the gospel is what makes us stand. The traction under our feet is the belief in the providential hand of God to deliver on every salvific promise He ever made in the Scripture to you and to me. That's what keeps us in the fight every day. Some of you are getting your posterior parts whipped. Every day in this war, because you have no confidence, no readiness in the gospel. You're barefooted, Fighting in the mud. It ain't doing you a lot of good. You're slipping and sliding. You're all over the map. Paul says, put your boots on for this fight. Shod your feet. Not with the gospel. With the readiness of the gospel. We're going to unpack that today. The readiness given by the gospel of peace. The readiness given by the gospel, please. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. That's our text for the day. First of all, we are ready to stand. We are ready to stand because of the gospel of peace. The readiness we've received against our great opponent is the gospel of peace. What it has done to us and in us. Let me say it this way. The Roman soldier that Paul had next to him in his home imprisonment, or his cell there, that he's looking at. Remember, the background is Isaiah 59. The fact that the warrior, the Savior, the warrior Messiah has on the, the armor of God. 
the background of this text is Isaiah 11, verses 4 and 5, where it talks about the warrior again, Messiah, having on the righteous armor of God. Those are the kind of in the distant background. What Paul does is grab that theme of armor and apply it to us. In Isaiah's text, Jesus is wearing the armor. In Paul's idea, we're wearing Jesus' armor. He not only wears it, but he's giving it now to us, duplicate copies to us. So we put them on every day for the battle. Now, the Roman soldier then is there, and he begins to look at him and say, okay, the breastplate of righteousness. They had a breastplate, a mail, made of mail, of metal. They had a breastplate. The belt of truth, which held the whole together. The whole armor was held together in the waist. He's done it. Then he looks down and says, and the readiness given by the gospel of peace is your feet, your shoes, what you're wearing. These shoes were half boots. They strapped up the shin, and on their bottom were hobnails. Little spikes like cleats. And what Paul's referring to is that when you have assurance of your salvation, assurance that God will carry through the promise of peace with Him and peace with other men, you have the spikes needed to keep your traction every day in the fight. If you don't have the assurance of peace with God and peace with your fellow man, you will slip and slide all over the place. You're worried about the wrong things. You're distracted by a lack of peace. What is the gospel of peace? This is not a new idea. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 5. Take your Bible and turn to Romans 5. Here Paul expands on the idea of what he means in Ephesians 6 verse 15 and 16. It's that here... He says specifically what we have. and he has, There's two elements to the message, the gospel peace. It's interesting to me, in the middle of a war, Paul's talking about peace. Ex- example, think of the warrior who's on the battlefield, carnage all around him, and, and yet he seems at home. He's not frantic. He's not flailing. He's not afraid. People are getting their heads cut off. People are getting disemboweled all around him, blood splattering. It's gory. People are dying. And yet this warrior is in perfect confidence. He's ready. He's prepared. And his heart and mind are at peace. He's focused on his enemy, not on the things around him. That comes from the gospel, the good news. What is it about the gospel that brings us peace. First of all, Romans 5 verse 1 says, Since we have been justified by faith, what? We have peace with God. The first element of the shoes, the spikes that hold us in the war, is peace with God. When a person fully understands, when you grasp and apply into your life the fact that the Almighty no longer wars against you, has wrath to destroy you, or wants to cast you into the utter darkness because of your rebellion, once you really comprehend that and apply that in your life, you have peace. Any man who thinks God, knows that God, is unhappy and displeased with him, can never have peace. Would you agree? Think about your life before you became a Christian. Would you term it peaceful in your heart and mind? 
Or would you, when you lay down at night, think often, what if, what if this message of the gospel is true? What if God is wrathful against me? What if the almighty creator snuffs me out? A lack of peace. So Paul says the first element of what holds us, remember the analogy, stand firm, right? So the traction we have in this standing, in our fight, is that we have peace with God. We're not sliding, moving around because we know we have peace with God. But there's a second element. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 2 for the second element of the gospel of peace. So the first and primary thing he has in mind is the peace we have with God because we've been justified, made righteous in front of him. The second part of this gospel of peace, this assurance that we get through peace, the gospel of peace, is our peace with our fellow men. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The traction we have in the war against Satan and his minions is peace with God and peace with our fellow man. John Owen was going in to speak to Mary, Queen of Scots. Excuse me, John Knox was going in to speak. Wrong John and country. You Scottish descents don't get upset. John Knox was going in to speak to Mary. Now, if you know anything about Bloody Mary, she hated Protestants, to put it lightly. Knox was called, summoned to speak with her. As he went in, he was questioned, how can you go in front of this queen with such peace? His statement to that was, when you have been on your knees before the righteous judge, You can stand in front of any man. That's the kind of stance we're talking about in the gospel of peace. We have peace with God. That's the first foot of traction. On the second foot is peace with our fellow men. We know we are not wrestling against flesh and blood. We are confident that if they hate us, they hate us because not because of who we are, but because of what the gospel is. And they hate the God who has sent the gospel to them. And so we don't take up fight against them, but we understand the scheme of Satan and we find traction in the peace that passes all understanding. So in the middle of the war, the soldier shod with the peace of the gospel has the assurance necessary to stand firm, not give way, not give up, not lose hope. So that brings us to our text in Ephesians 6, verse 15, where it says, The shoes for our feet are the readiness, the preparedness given by the gospel of peace. It's not primarily, but secondarily in this text, that we are to take that gospel to others. Now that we have this confidence and this peace, we desire to share it with others. 
We can't stand to see people in turmoil spiritually. We don't like to see our neighbors, our friends, our business acquaintances suffer because of a lack of peace. Because we have it, we want them to have it. And so then we become messengers. And so it's no mistake that Isaiah 52.7 is in the background here. Where? He's not quoting it, and he is not using it the way Isaiah did, but it's in his mind. Isaiah 52.7, And the feet, the beautiful feet, are planted on Mount Zion. The gospel of peace. And he quotes that in Romans 10, verse 16, when he says, How beautiful are the feet of those who carry the gospel of peace. So primarily here, he's talking about the stand we can take, not the offensive run that we can make on another. Rather, what we have internally, but what we have internally, like last week, we see what we have internally comes out in a desire to share this gospel of peace. It should concern you if, hey, you have taken your stand in the gospel and you have found peace and you have no desire to tell your neighbor to tell your family or to go to the other side of the world and tell those who have not heard. If you have no desire to preach the gospel in your daily life, that should bother you. It should cause you to question everything you say you are to make sure you've stood in the gospel of peace. Because what happens in the gospel of peace is you are reconciled to God and so therefore you become a reconciler for God. 2 Corinthians 5, having been reconciled to him, now we have been given the message of reconciliation to go to others who are unreconciled and tell them there's a way you can be right with God. This stance you see me taking is not by my strength, it's the power of the peace that you can have through Jesus Christ. So the readiness prepares us to stand and gives us a platform to preach. That's the first part of the sermon. Secondly, we see that we are to shield, to be shielded from attack by our faith in Christ. Verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The shield in place here, the Roman shield, covered the man. In their day, they, often the enemy stood at a distance and threw flaming swords, I mean flaming arrows, into the battle formation of the enemy. What the Romans did, better than anybody, was figure out that you can build shields that when together, in rank, bowed underneath them, give you a turtle shell over the top. So they would see the enemy pulling back to shoot these flaming arrows, and they would fall into a defensive position and hold up shield above head. And because they were all standing together with their shields above them, no dart could hit them. No flaming, fiery dart could come on them. And so they all deflected off, and then they could go back to fighting. This is what Paul's drawing on. He's saying, the shield of faith can protect you from all of the schemes of the flying arrows of fire that Satan is throwing your way. You have to have the shield of faith. The shield of faith is what God has equipped us with. John Bunyan in The Pilgrim's Progress quotes this, or alliterates, or allegorizes this for us. When in that story, the Christian comes along on his pilgrimage, Apollyon. And Apollyon goes to attack 
by throwing a fiery dart. What is it that Christian lifts? The shield of faith that extinguishes that dart and allows him to continue. Faith. Now, to understand this, we must think about what faith is. Romans chapter 4 again. Let's go back to Romans and let's define faith. Biblically, let's define faith. Romans 4, verse 13. And we're, notice all of the references I'm making are to Paul's writing. This is what I think Paul knew and what he believed. We could draw on any number of scripture outside of Paul, but we're dealing with the Pauline letter, so we're looking at what Paul often uses when he talks about the word. Faith. What does Paul mean? What does he have in view? I'm going to read this text and make short comment on it. Romans 4, 13. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And we see here the, the part that faith is taking in our journey. It is what connects us to the promise made to Abraham. Faith in God's word. The promises of God. That's why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to the adherents of the law or the Jews, but also to the sharers, those who share the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all, both Jews and Gentiles. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. So now we've been grafted in by faith into the family of Abraham, which is a family built on faith, right? But look over at verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who have faith alone in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Ephesians, again, chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? Faith is the gift of God. Not of works, so that no one may boast. So faith, in Paul's mind, is centered on the fact that we believe the promise of God. It's not just faith in general. It's faith specifically in Christ and the promises of God made to us in Christ. So as we think about this idea of the faith as our shield, what might we think is the attack? The flaming dart. I believe he has in mind, is the dart that says, you're not good enough. One of the most dangerous schemes of Satan against us is that he convinces us our work is not sufficient. You think God loves you? Really? You're a sinner. He usually quotes scripture at that point because he comes dressed in rays of light. 
You mean he loves you? He whose eyes are too pure to look on sin. Don't kid yourself. He doesn't love you. You're a scoundrel. You're a sinner. You're an adulterer. You're a fornicator. You're a thief. You're a liar. Everything in you is bad. You can never measure up. You're not good enough. You can't survive that onslaught unless you see him drawing that arrow and you live faith. The only thing that extinguishes that is faith. When he says to you, you're not good enough, rather than arguing your righteousness, you hold up faith and say, you're right, I'm not good enough. But I'm not saved because I'm good enough. I'm saved because I believe the promise of my Father. When he says you're an adulterer, don't argue with him about the technicalities of adultery. Trust me, he wins when you argue that. When you say, oh, I've never slept with that woman, he says, oh, yeah, but Matthew 5 says if you thought impurely about her, you've already committed adultery, you're guilty. You want to stand in the courtroom with that flimsy defense, Christian? You think God loves you? The only hope you have in that day is to live faith and say, but he has counted him who knew no sin to be sin for me. And so therefore my adultery is under the blood. Then the fiery dart, which was intended for your heart, bounces off and does no harm. When he comes to you and says, you're a horrible parent. You're a terrible parent. You got children who came through your home and you taught them the gospel every day that you thought was powerful enough to save them. And now they're in their adult years and they're in full out rebellion against God. The gospel is a failure and you are a failure. The only hope you have in that day is to lift up the shield of faith which says God is not slow to keep his promise as some count slowness. But rather, he is waiting to the day that he saves all of his elect. I trust him. I can't understand it. I don't know what he's doing in this moment with my child, but I know he will keep his word. It's the only hope you've got. You're a terrible pa parent, and you're an awful wife. You've got a smart mouth. All of your venom comes out on your husband, who isn't even a Christian. You're soft as a man. You let your wife run slam over you. The only hope you've got is to lift your shield.